<clears throat> I really love the words of that hymn, Glorious Day. Um, Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified. Freely forever. One day, he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Look forward to that day. And actually, that's a, that's a hymn that we sing. Uh, it's also in our hymn book. Um, this is just to a different tune. But um, I asked David to sing that song uh, specifically because of what we're studying today. And uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the last verse of it is a, little bit of a, is a little bit of a hymn. At least most people believe it's a hymn, an early church hymn. And so I'm excited to look at that and to, to study that today. But first, we'll look at the whole section that we're going to study. So turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 through 16. It says this, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Today we're going to be looking at the, um, the basically the, the main focus of this passage. And if you've listened to our sermons over the past couple of weeks, we've referred to this passage over and over again. We say, this is what the, the theme of the, the passage is. This is, what, this is why uh, Paul wrote the letter to Timothy. And um, so, so, looking at, so studying this today is going to really strengthen our understanding of the, the, whole, the whole book, I hope, in verse 14, if you look at verse 14 first, Paul gives a practical reason. He gives a practical reason for um, writing the, the book, writing the letter. He says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed. Paul had left Timothy at Ephesus. He had left him there, and he had sent him there so that he would work on a few issues that the church was having. And he needed to deal with those problems while he was dealing with those problems, Paul left to Macedonia. And it was there that Paul wrote the letter to Timothy to encourage him to do the things that he instructed him to do, to charge him to do those things that needed to be done. And the letter was written probably because Paul wasn't going to be back in time. He wouldn't be back um, soon enough. So he wanted to give him a, a written, written letter to him. In the next two verses, uh, verses 15 and 16, we, ha- we have the mission of the church and the message of the church. If someone's to ask you, what, what does the church do? What is, what is the church purpose? What, what's the function of the church? What would you tell them? Well, we can study that today in these two verses. Look at verse 15. It says, But if I am delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. This is the reason that Paul wrote the letter. Believers ought to conduct themselves properly in the church. We have been talking about this for the past couple of weeks. We learned in the first two weeks that false teachers had arisen and were teaching um, doctrines that were, um, that, were, that were wrong and that were incorrect. There was, um, then we looked at proper worship and prayer of men 
and women in the church. Then we looked at the roles of women in the church and the functions that they have and that they should be, men, they should be women of character, that that's really what God looks at. And the same thing for men, that men are to be men of character. And we looked at godly leadership in the church and that these men must have these character qualities. We looked at elders and we looked at deacons. And, and as we keep going through the book, we'll see that the rest of the book is also tied to that core message, that core theme, how to conduct yourself in the church of God. So I believe that when he says these things, he was referring to the first three chapters and also the last three chapters. How to conduct yourself in the house, house of God is the heart of the message to Timothy. And it's for the, it was for Timothy, and it was also for Ephesus, and it was also for our church today. We shouldn't, dis, we shouldn't um, detach ourselves from this message, but we should apply it to ourselves. And we look at the house of God. The house of God is really like, is the household of God. It isn't a building. It isn't this building that you see here. That's not the church. The church is made up of people who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the true church. If you're a believer this morning, then you're a part of the church of God, the house of God. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household of God is made up of Members, true believers. Then Paul continues to say in verse 15, he says that the house of God is the church of the living God. It is the church of the living God. This is a tremendous statement to think about. But we are, the part of the, we are part of the church of the living God. We worship and serve. We worship and serve and know the living God. We know the living God. This distinction separates us from other churches who, who, uh, who worship other gods, a god that is more palatable in their minds, or, serve, or worship and serve and um, adore something that's been created by their own hands. But we serve, we serve a living God, something that is true. And Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 10.10. 10, says, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. The church is the dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, you had uh, that God dwelt in the tabernacle. God dwelt in a tabernacle. He dwelt in a physical structure, in a physical building. On the other hand, the church is made up of, not a material, physical building, but it is made up of people. It is a spiritual house built up of living stones, as Peter says, which we are believers, which are believers in Christ. Believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And let's read it in 1 Peter 2. It says, 1 Peter 2, 5, 4 through 5, it says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God, and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is the reason that our conduct must be holy. Many, you know, many of us would never dare swear in a, in a building, a church building. No, many of us would never dare to steal something or, or worse, to, to commit adultery or to look at pornography in this building. But the fact is that this building is not anything special. This building is not special. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? 
who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Every believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. How can we use our bodies in an unholy way, in an unworthy manner, improperly? How, how can we do that? We would never do these things in a church building. How much, why would we do them in a place where the Spirit of God dwells? As a church body, we must conduct ourselves wholly before the Lord, properly. And why is, it, why is that important? Because Jesus Christ purchased us with his own blood. We are not our own. We are Christ's. The next, the church, it goes on to say in the, um, verse 15, Paul says, the church is the living, is a, it says the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and ground of the truth. One of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world, was the Temple of Diana. And I have a picture of a, um, a modern-day re- rendering of that, that, what that temple might have looked like. The Temple of Diana was, had a great foundation, and it was constructed of magnificent pillars. And these pillars were, there was about 127 of them, and they were gold-plated marble pillars. And the, these pillars, are, in, in those days, those pillars were used to proclaim, they usually posted things on them, and they displayed things on them. And they, they proclaimed and upheld um, a message. And Paul is using this illustration for the church. We are to uphold and lift up the truth. We are to proclaim it and to uphold it. it is a, we are the foundation and support of the truth. That's the mission of the church. Believers, we, we do that in our individual lives by our conduct. We must live our lives in the light of truth, in the light of what the scripture says. It needs to be consistent with the, the, um, the, the Christian faith. It must be consistent. It goes back to what we, we, we say over and over again, that we must know the word of God. We must know what the word of God says in here so we know how to properly conduct ourselves. And, and with today's society, with so many lies being promoted and so many um, false doctrines being promoted by churches, and things will be promoted by media and, and, and everywhere else, we must be faithful to the truth. We must know the truth and uphold it. What is exactly the truth that we proclaim? What's the message that we, that we have as a church? What is our message that we proclaim to others? Well, the message that we proclaim is actually found in verse 16. And these... These few brief lines encompass what the church believes. It's summed up in six concise but very rich statements. And each statement is packed with understanding, with, with a message and meaning. Um, if someone were to ask you to what, what the church does, can you explain the message? This is what you could look at. So let's read it really quick. It says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. How many of you have visited the Grand Canyon? How many of you have been there before? A good number of you have. The Grand Canyon is vast, isn't it? It's huge. How many of you, how many of you have, that have been there have seen the whole thing? Probably none of you have. And I don't think anybody ever will. 
These pictures just show a, a brief glimpse of just parts of the Grand Canyon. It is immense. There is um, the Grand Canyon is, a, is along, along the whole river that goes through the Grand Canyon is 127 miles, no, 277 miles long throughout the Grand Canyon. At the widest point that it stretches, it is 18 miles in width. And at the narrowest point, it's four miles wide. It is also about one mile deep. You see that it's very high from the ground up. The Grand Canyon is overwhelming in its sheer size. It is immense. It would take a lifetime to explore the whole canyon. If you took a plane and just flew over it, you'd, see, you'd get a good overview of the, the canyon. You'd see, um, you'd see a lot of the, the, um, the valleys and the, a lot of the, the cliffs. But could you say that you really saw the Grand Canyon? You'd get an overview of it, but you'd, to really see it, you'd have to get, a, get down onto ground level and maybe look at it from the top down. And you could see all the different um, features of the rocks and the river and the, the plants and some of the animals. But did you really see the Grand Canyon? Is there more to explore? Yeah, there's tons of more. You could, to really explore, you'd have to go down a trail and go down all the trails and then be actually in, in the, the bottom of the canyon. And even then, there's still 227, 277 miles to explore. It would take a long time. And as you to continue to observe and to explore it, you realize that the more you study it, the more there is. And you realize that the brief glance you saw in the airplane really wasn't the full picture. You got the, whole, you got the overview, but you didn't see all the, the details in there. You didn't see the caves and the canyons and the wildlife that you couldn't see before from above. Did you know that there are 70 different types of um, mammals in there? 250 different types of species of birds? 25 different types of reptiles and five different types of amphibians in there. You wouldn't have been able to see that from a plane or even from the top looking down. The further you go, the more you realize how vast this canyon is and how deep there is and how much more there is to know. And that's, that's really how it is studying the Word of God. It's really how it is studying the Word of God. You realize the more you study the Word of God, the more you don't know. And the more that you search it, you find more truths and, and hidden things that you couldn't see just from a brief overview, just, just reading it at a quick glance. But the more you meditate on it, the more you study it, the more you appreciate just what is really there. In Romans eleven thirty three, it states this very well. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches of both, oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and ways past finding out. It is, it is tremendous to think when you study the word of God just how much there is, there is there. And on first glance of reading this verse, verse 16, you might see that there's some good thoughts there, but there's not really that much there. And some people might read through this and go, okay, well, let's, I read that through, and now I'm on to chapter 14. I'm sorry. I read through that, and now I'm on to chapter 4, right? And I want to challenge you that there is so much in this passage, and just these six little lines. There's a lot of truth that's, that can be discovered through, through, under, through digging in and, and finding out. And I want you to encourage you to, to study it yourself and to know these truths. Just like the Grand Canyon, you could spend your whole lifetime studying this passage and studying the Bible as a whole. 
And I can tell you right now that if, if you studied this, this, this one verse, that you would never exhaust it. You would never exhaust it. And I, I know we're not going to be able to cover everything this morning. There's no way. But I want to whet your appetite. So let's take a look. So this is the message that we proclaim. It is without controversy. It means that there's no question. There's no debating that this is the truth. God's truth is true no matter what people say. It's true whether you choose to believe it or not. It doesn't become true or more true because you believe it or don't believe it. It becomes true because God says so. Because his word says so. It's a mystery. It's a mystery because we wouldn't have known this otherwise if God had not revealed it to us. If God had not shown it to us, the mystery of godliness deals with the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So these next, these next six lines reveal to us, from the word of God, they reveal to us the truths concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. And many believe this was an early church hymn. So let's look at the first line. It says, God was manifested in the flesh. It means that God was revealed in the flesh. God came down as a man. This describes the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. How do you really grasp that fact that God became a man? The more you think about it, it's more mind-blowing than than anything. If you lived during the Old Testament, you'd know that that God was the living God. He was the one that was... Um, that to, to approach him, you have to go into the tabernacle. Only certain people could do that. And it was only certain times in the year. He was the maker of the universe. He was a creator. He was the king of kings and lord of lords. Why would he come down to this earth? If you heard this for the first time, how would you react to know that God came to be a man? Yes, we believe that God became a man, but do we really appreciate and understand what it meant? God left the splendor and glory from heaven, and he came down to this earth. So how do we know that's true? How do we know that God, became, that God came down in, in the form of a man? It says that in the Bible, John 1, 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And then in verse 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I believe that God, God came down as a man because the Bible says so. Jesus was born in the manger, and God was revealed in the flesh. He was revealed in human form for the first time. And since he was revealed, this showed that God, this really shows that God existed beforehand because he, he always has existed, even from the beginning. God, the Son of God, is eternal. He was there from the creation of the world. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. God manifested in the flesh also encompasses his whole life. So to study that, you'd have to look at the life of Jesus and, and, and what he did on earth. And that would take a lifetime just to study his work. His earthly ministry of what he did, he, his life was full of example 
of rich illustrations and example for us to follow. And when he became a man, he didn't live life. He, he lived a perfect life. He wasn't a sinner like us. He was perfect in everything he did, and he's an example of godliness to us. The next line, it says, he was justified in the Spirit. So in contrast to being revealed in the flesh, he was justified in the Spirit. The word justified means to be declared righteous. When Jesus came to the earth, he didn't come as a king, but as a bondservant. He took the lowest position. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit... um, By being baptized, Jesus identified with sinners. Jesus is righteous and is always righteous. He was never, he's never a sinner. But the Holy Spirit there was declaring him to be righteous, which proves that Jesus is God. It proves that he is God. The Holy Spirit's ministry is really to show who Jesus is and to point that Jesus is, in fact, God. And after what Jesus went to the cross, He bore our sins and died, and the Holy Spirit justified him by raising him from the dead. In Romans 1, 3 through 4, it tells us this, Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Christ was justified by the Spirit by being raised from the dead. You know, if Jesus was just a simply, was only a man, just simply a man, his death on the cross wouldn't have meant anything. It would have been of no significance. He couldn't have died for his sins because he would have to die for his own sins if he was just a man. But Jesus was not a man. He was God in the flesh. God, Jesus is fully God and fully man. The fact that the Spirit raised him from the dead declared Jesus to be God. It proved that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. If he hadn't, he would still be in the grave. So the next question that, seems to, that needs to be answered, it seems, that, is that why did Jesus have to be raised from the dead? What is the significance of the resurrection? Jesus rising from the dead is essential to the gospel, we believe. It's essential to the gospel that we preach and proclaim. If Jesus, the gospel that we preach is this, Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. The third day, according to the scriptures. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul discusses this very issue. He goes on and talks about it in quite, in quite length. It says, If Christ did not rise from the dead, there is no salvation, and we are still lost in our sins. That's how important and critical it is for him to rise from the dead. That's how important it is. Jesus had to rise to conquer death and to conquer sin. By Jesus defeated the grave by rising from the dead. He rose victoriously, and then we can, pr- we can shout proudly, O oh, death, where's your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? And then the fact that Jesus rose from the dead gives us hope that one day we will rise from the dead and that we'll be with him forever when he returns. The next, next phrase is seen by angels. How does this fit with everything else? He was seen by angels. Well, first of all, the angels are in God's presence. They are worshiping. They are are adoring him day in and day out. They're in his presence. In Christ's earthly ministry, the angels played a huge role uh, throughout the whole ministry. They were there at the birth, 
announcing to, Mo- to Mary and to Joseph the, uh, the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were, they were there with the shepherds in the flo- that were attending the flock, and they, uh, and they proclaimed Jesus. And then a whole host of them came out and praised God. Angels ministered to Jesus as he was tempted in the wilderness. And then an angel came to him in the Garden of Gethsemane and ministered to him there. And throughout the whole scripture, even during the creation, the angels watched as God unfolded, as the history of what God was doing with mankind unfolded. The angels watched as the Lord Jesus went to die on the cross. This was a remarkable event for them to observe because they, they, they saw the one that they worshipped in heaven, the God in heaven that they, they adored, come to this earth and become a man and then humbly go to the cross and die for your sins, for my sins. The angels know nothing about, um, they, they praise him for his justice. They praise him for, for who he is. But they, they will never experience love, the love that he showed us, the, the, the mercy and the compassion for, for him to die on the cross, to die for sinners like us, showed the tremendous love of Christ towards us, the undesirable and undeserving sinner. And it says in Peter that these, the angels desire to look into these things. To, into the gospel, into, into, what it, into what it means. The angels have seen God, and the angels were there as he ascended to heaven um, into God's throne. Next, that he was, the next line is that he was preached among the Gentiles. He was preached among the Gentiles. This statement alone should, should really um, make you rejoice, actually. Um, as we read through the Old Testament, we see that God dealing with primarily with the Jews those were God's chosen people. But now, through what Christ has done on the cross, the message of salvation has been made available to not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. That's who we are. We, the Gentiles, anybody that's, any, all the other nations in the world. In Acts, we find that Peter is preaching to the Gentiles, and after they hear the gospel and believe, the people are astonished that the, the Gentiles would believe. Then the, the only thing they could say is then, they glorified God and said, then, then God has also granted Gentiles repentance to life. The gospel isn't only for the Jews. It is also for the Gentiles. It's for the whole nation, all the nations. And it says in Ephesians that Paul talks about the mystery of Christ. He says that, Gentiles, that, he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in the Christ through the gospel. The fact that Gentiles can, the, the, the gospel has been preached to the Gentiles means that the gospel is available to you. This is the gospel that is preached to you. You must recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that you are um, separated from God because God is holy, God is just, and he must judge sin. He must judge sin. And every sin you commit is, is worthy of eternal death. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And then the next phrase, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we learn about the mystery of godliness, we learn that God became a flesh. Sorry, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And Jesus came to this earth because he came for us. He came to die on the cross. He lived a perfect sinless life and he humbled himself. 
and went to the cross and endured the cruel beating and the mocking and spitting of sinners. And Jesus was nailed to the cross and hung to die. And on that cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God for your sins and for mine. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve. And after Jesus died, he was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And he proved that after Jesus died, he rose from the dead, proving to be victorious over sin and death. And after Jesus, um, and Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you place your faith in Christ Jesus and trust in him that he paid for your sins on the cross, then you will be saved. It, is for, um, it says in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then you think about the verse, you think of uh, preaching among the Gentiles and the great commission that Jesus has. He t- and he commands all of us to go out to all the world. He says in Matthew, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the one simple message that we com- are commanded to preach, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again according to the Scriptures. As a church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, this is our calling. We are to preach the gospel. We are to preach Christ crucified. And we are to go out and proclaim it to everyone and all the nations. The next, the next is believed on in the world. The gospel we preach among the Jews and the Gentiles, um, it, was, it was preached to the Jews and the Gentiles. On the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 souls that were added to the church. And we read, as we study through the book of Acts, you see the rapid growth of the church. And we see that there were men um, that were added to the church. And then there were more that were added to the church. And they were added, and the church grew. And then it multiplied, and it, and it grew and grew. There was a lot of math in the book of Acts. And then we read about um, how the disciples were persecuted, and then they were scattered and sent out. And the church grew even more. And then Philip brings the gospel to the Samaritans. And Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And then Acts goes, um, Then in, later in Acts, uh, Paul goes on his missionary journeys and preaches to all the cities. And churches are, are, are um, born. Each one of you sitting here who has believed the gospel is evidence of the fact that the gospel has been believed on in the world. And we are now being passed the baton, in a sense. We are to continue to preach the gospel to all the nations so that they will believe on him. In Revelation, we see the end, and we see um, uh, those in heaven praising God. And it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a multitude which no one could number, all, of the, nation, all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Heaven will be full of people from all nations in the world. Next 
It says that he, um, Christ was received up in glory. After Jesus rose from the dead, he was seen by many witnesses. Uh, then he ascended into heaven. We read about it in Acts 1, that what happened there. It says that, Now when he had spoken these things, while they were watching, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, who, said, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The fact that Jesus ascended into heaven shows that God was pleased with the work that Jesus Christ did on, on earth. In Hebrews 1.3, it states this pretty clear. It says, when he, had, that when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. We, we now long for the day when Jesus Christ will return to, grab, to take his saints up in glory and to reign with him forever. Now this, this was only a short bit of time that I had, but this hymn is packed with a lot of doctrinal truth. We, we covered the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection, the life, the death, the commission, and his ascension. And we only briefly touched on all those areas. <clears throat> but this is the mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ is the focal point of this message. We preach Christ crucified. That's our message. And this is what Christ has done for us. This is the wonderful message that we believe and proclaim. If we go back to verse 15, about why he wrote this, he says that, I write these things, why? So that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves. In light of what he has done for us, we should live our lives with proper conduct and our lives should be holy. You know, doctrine isn't merely just to fill our heads with knowledge. It is the effect of our lives. It is to change us. As people observe the church, our conduct should uphold the truth. It should uphold and proclaim the truth through our lives that the living God was revealed in the flesh. When, when you share the gospel, when we share the gospel, we always want to talk about Jesus. We always want to tell them about Jesus. There was a man who was training a group of young men. Um, they were getting ready to go out in the streets of New York City to pass out tens of thousands of tracts and to witness people. And he shared them what to expect. And they had questions. Questions came up about what to look for and how to give people an answer to the questions they might have. You know, how do you know if you're going to be able to handle everything that they ask you? You know, what are you going to say if they bring up this or they bring up that? And his advice to them was, was this. All you really need to do is accept this message and then go out, go out into all the world and proclaim and announce the truth of Jesus Christ. That's the message. It's simply proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. You don't have to deal with every single issue. He said that, People constantly throw up smoke screens after smoke screens. Just go back to the main issue. Go back to Christ. Well, what about Jesus Christ? What about what he has done? Did you, did you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Who is Jesus Christ? What about his death and resurrection? Are you interested in forgiveness of sins? Do you want eternal life? If you were to die tonight, where would you go? Those are the issues. Bring them back to Christ. There was, a, there was an old English church 
Um, and, and many of those churches back in that day, they, had a, they would have a motto on their church. And their motto was, we preach Christ crucified. And on that church, there was ivy, as they do in England. They have ivy, and the ivy grew. As time went by, the slogan now changed to, we preach Christ. The crucified was gone. And then as time went by, the ivy grew more and more, and it said, we preach. And every time the ivy grew and the church died. The church must preach Christ crucified. We can't let other things get in the way of our message. We have to preach and proclaim the truth, the gospel. This is what the church is all about. You know, the short hymn that we looked at earlier uh, this morning, the one that David sang, uh, and we all sang with him, One Day. And we're going to sing it as our closing hymn, and I want you guys to think about the words, to meditate on those words, because a lot of what we looked at, that Jesus being manifested in the flesh, he came to this earth. Meditate on those words. Meditate on the words in this scripture as well. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified, freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for, for, your tru- for the truth in your word. And Lord, we, we pray that we would, um, that we take this as a reminder that we are to proclaim your truth and to uphold the truth. And in light of the, the amazing truths that, um, that are part of the mystery of godliness, Lord, that we would live in light of that, that we would meditate on these things, believe the truth, Lord, and proclaim it to others. Lord, we pray that um, you'd, you'd increase our understanding and, and, and knowledge of you, and that we would appreciate you more and more, and that our lives would reflect, Lord, through a holy conduct. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.